Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. We closed our last episode with Paul O'Neill at a crucial and rather existential moment. The second part of our conversation extends to our small group of audience members. As you will hear Paul responding to questions on the educational turn, auto-theory, and variations on how to work with artists. Ahali conversations are often recorded with an intimate group of audience members, so if you'd like to be in the loop and even join live sessions, please feel free to get in touch. Now, this is the first time we are doing a two-part series on a conversation, so let's see how that will go. So, if there are any questions or any comments or anything you want to add or ask, Please take the floor. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for uh, and also John, of course, for this conversation. Has been really interesting to hear, you know, like the evolution also of your uh, work and your thoughts. I have been following your writing uh, since a very long time, so I'm I'm taking the the chance to ask you the first question because you just mentioned this idea of the educational turn. So then considering that you analyzed extensively the idea of the educational turn uh, with respect to curatorial practices in uh, 2010, and considering also your experience as art educator and uh, director of various curatorial schools in the past, uh, what do you think has changed since uh, you wrote the book about conceptualizing the educational turn? Or rather, do you think that we are still into it? And um, also to close, what do you think has changed within institutions of education in this case for the past 12 years? Thank you. That's a wonderfully large uh, question or series of questions. And I'll try and maybe pick it a little bit from 2010 onwards. So 2010, what seemed apparent, I organized a panel discussion at the ICA in London People like Mick Wilson and Adrian Rifkin, Andrea Phillips, um, Richard Burkett, uh, Dave Beach, Liam Gillick, and Sarah Pierce. I think they were the panel, roughly that was the panel. And it was in, in the context of a project that Richard Burkett was curating at the ICA called Not to 60. And in a way, it was bringing together a kind of a mapping of other practices or mapping of artists and networks of artists that were maybe not fully embedded or fully fully supported by the kind of like gallery system or the contemporary art exhibition system in London. And this was so it's a kind of a, a London-y show, but also looking to break out into other conversations elsewhere. I organized this panel and to thinking about how the invitation to organize panels or to organize talks seemed to become increasingly the invitation. And it wasn't that it was odd anymore. It wasn't that it was like, oh, I'm being asked to do a talk in a university. No, I'm being asked to do a talk in a gallery. No, I'm being asked to actually organize a whole 
program in the gallery. And this was very noticeably shifting. And, and I think a lot of there was a lot of like maybe negative criticism around Bologna Accords in Europe, also around the privatization of art education in the UK and also had it already happened in the US and, and so on but also a critique of education more widely, formal education more widely as the space within which kind of radical left thinking could could be mobilized. So this was a little bit of the context. And then also it, it seems there had already been at least a decade of programming by publicly funded institutions from Tate to Serpentine in London, but then also thinking of free school projects like Free Copenhagen University, United Nations Plaza, so-called failed manifesto school in Cyprus and Nicosia. And then also other things where, whereby um, education was, was a leitmotif of one of the documentaries. And then also where performance seemed to take the form of lectures or talks or seminars and so forth. So all of these things seem to kind of all be very apparent around 2010. And in a way, this was the term that myself and, and Mick Wilson uh, used to, to represent this turn or this move from artistic practice as a form of making to artistic practice as a form of speaking. And speaking as doing was becoming, in a way, slightly more dominant than the making as doing in terms of practice. So maybe... In a way, none of that has changed uh, and all of that is still happening and even work at a, on a worse level in terms of privatization of education, in terms of, you know, the shrinking of spaces for radical thinking within arch educational, formal educational structures, then also the continued absorption or at least mobilization of activism within spaces of contemporary art whether it be public art or whether it be performance or whether it be curatorial programming in institutions uh, from art fairs to museums and, and so on. But I think if anything was has been kind of maybe a little bit lost by this moment of the last, say, 12 years is what Sarah Pierce called is that the educational turn takes many different forms. It takes the form of rethinking education within the institution of education. It takes the, the space of thinking about education outside the educational structure because it enables a different kind of thinking around the pedagogical and um, spaces of knowledge production. But then also the capacity of education as a space where thinking and talking with one another is connected with thinking and talking with others elsewhere. So this idea of other conversations happening elsewhere and connecting them to your own context, this kind of shared idea or this like networked idea of learning and education, I think was, was really, I think, very kind of like important, I suppose, like trope at, at this particular moment. I think what's formal curatorial educational programs, uh, how they've maybe changed in the last 12 years is that they are certainly more exclusive. Um, they are certainly uh, more expensive. They are also the places where some of the more innovative curators have emerged from these institutions. 
So in a way, there's kind of a double side to, to this prevalence of the curatorial uh, master's programs. I think what the educational term when, in terms of curatorial uh, teaching happened, whereby the knowledge around curating and the knowledge around the history or history of exhibitions, globalization, de-westernizing those histories, decentering those histories, decolonizing those histories and those knowledge systems around curating, I think has been really, really important. And this has been very much mobilized by curatorial programs, by the students that have graduated from these programs, I think in addition to other programs, but I think there's very particular and specific decolonizing and de-westernizing knowledge produced out of these curatorial programs because of the makeup of the, the students, but then also the, the urgency around many of these kind of fields or discourses. Has the educational turn ended? No, I think it's actually still, it still continues. In a way, it's, it's much more, on one level, much more politicized, and on another level, it's much more financialized. <laughs> so it has this kind of two sides to it. Um, I think when you meet students um, MA programs now, as opposed to say in the 1990s, the big difference is like the capacity to get them jobs or to get them spaces of employment. And it's very different to the kind of student that was attending these programs in the 90s, the same as, same as fine art programs. You know, you meet student fine art programs in the 1990s, they're there to to think about art, to talk about art, to, you know, and this is the main reason why they are there. But then now it's very much about the system of art and the gallery system, the uh, curator business, the career tracks of various curators who graduate from these programs and go often into very powerful or seemingly powerful positions of curating within the art worlds with relatively little experience of art, but a lot of experience of the art world, but not so much experience of the art. And this is something that I think that we've talked about, Chan, over the years um, about, you know, how do you decide your knowledge of something is sufficient in order to work with it or to engage with it or to even have an opinion on it? Like, how do you decide, you know, to show an artist's work? At what point do you know enough about or with that artist or have you talked enough with them or you've you've seen enough of their work or you've read enough or you you feel like you have uh, reached a moment where your knowledge is sufficient to be able to engage properly with their work this is not a default of, of many curators many curators just you know it's it is a shopping list you know a relatively short shopping list that that many curators attend to but then there are other curators that that open up whole worlds just to summarize or insert my own kind of interpretation of it you touched on like a very interesting point one is the professionalization both that comes with the let's say structured courses around curating but that professionalization on the one hand leads to this practice becoming a profession within the art industry and the learning the way to operate and work with the industry. But on the other hand, it's also expands on a kind of critical knowledge production because through the existence of those structured programs, there is an investment to research or there is an investment to incorporate other histories and other geographies. 
Yes, that's very well um, summarized. Yeah, this the two sides of this of this absorption of the educational turn within contemporary art and contemporary art being absorbed within the systems around contemporary art being absorbed within to education also. With, that could be called professionalization, whereas, you know, education and thinking about knowledge production and whose knowledge production and also decentering and de-westernizing and challenging and critiquing those knowledge systems. That has also been mobilized by the curatorial and spaces within which the curatorial has been advanced formally within educational institutions, but then also informally within biennials, small scale exhibition histories, artistic practices that, that may not be supported within the kind of epicenters of, of the art world and, and, and so on. So I think, you know, this kind of global reach that curating ha- has had ha- for, for good or for bad is a relatively new phenomenon still, you know, it's the, uh, you know, the idea of globalism uh, ultimately enable curating to be mobilized as a key practice of the contemporary art fields. You know, the idea of working with many uh, practices from across the world without borders or territories did enable curating to be mobilized as, as, a, as a kind of key channel of artistic production. And the biennial being, you know, the, the dominant model that enables this, this mobilization. But at the same time, you know, the homogenizing forces that com- come with that is, is also part of the kind of the capitalization of otherness and the capitalization of, you know, new practices, new territories, new identities being kind of commodified according to the, the kind of the needs of consumerism or capitalism or collecting or the market. Or different markets and so, and so on. But I do think that's what curatorial education, certainly in my experience of it within Bard and in Goldsmiths and the Apple and elsewhere is how the canon is this in a space of impossibility, but also the space of potentiality. There are so many, there are so many ways in which the canon has, it has been problematized and critiqued and, and also challenged through the emergence of other histories and other ways of thinking about those histories, other methodologies, other ways of looking at those histories and so on that I think have been really, really important in terms of an aside to, to these curatorial programs. And, and also how the, the, interest of, the interest of the students uh, and graduates from, from these programs has also been very kind of like in tune with these practices, I think, as well, like looking for other ways of of representing the the current moment and also representing, you know, other visions or other representations of the past. I'm also noticing that within this small group, there are curators and also practitioners who have studied curating in an MA program. So if there are other questions, of course, we can open up to those. Hello. Hi, Julia. I just have a quick question about the last part of your talk, where you were um, talking about personal experience. And I've been thinking a lot about the connections between personal experience and curatorial practice. So I was wondering, what do you think about the applications of this idea of auto-theory to curatorial practice? Like, What's your experience of maybe benefiting or like using your personal experience in, in your curatorial practice? Very good question. Also, um, and also something I've been thinking a lot about, 
how to situate the personal within one's practice whilst enabling it to be legible to others and so not you know not this classic irish way of like moaning or uh you know or spilling it all out or without being a little bit conscious of the rational or the possibility that it could be read you know by many different people so i've been writing a lot and rewriting existing texts a lot the last couple of years so what i mean by that is like writing and rewriting around the same spaces of vulnerability or the same spaces of the the auto theoretical uh so i've been doing that around questions of escape i've been doing that around ideas of mourning i've been doing that around death as as a space of possibility i've been doing that around the kind of idea of the recall you know so recalling moments of the past that are quite traumatic or maybe even debilitating at the time of their experience and how to articulate uh, that trauma or that that emotional intensity into other experiences, whether it be, you know, the pleasure of reading a text or the pleasure of looking at a film or listening to a piece of music or or touching someone's hand or 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 touching someone's face for the very last time and like holding on to that. As something which which can generate other future moments beyond that moment of of saying goodbye or a moment of the last touch or so on. So I, th- these things have been really maybe quite part of what I've been trying to, I suppose, challenge myself to navigate the last couple of years, but also with the knowledge of not wanting to be too exposed or too in a way to be kind of reflective in the moment of one's own self-exposure. So then maybe this resistance to this woe is me territory, at the same time realizing it as a, as a space of potentiality. So I think where I have found um, it to be quite interesting is like reading a lot and writing a lot about the process of reading and writing a lot. So we're in the auto theory, you know, from Chris Krauss to, I don't know, Kate Sombrano or Roland Barthes or Tavia Butler or others. But this moment, these moments where the writer is inscribing an experience through the complicated reflection of writing about the difficulty of writing through that moment of difficulty. What I mean by that is like a lot about how difficult it is to write about these things rather than writing the difficult thing. It, this has been very, been very um, I suppose, generous space for me, uh, thinking about how do I write about something that's so difficult? Well, one way of doing that is to write about how difficult it is. And then maybe then you get to the point where you can actually represent the experience or the trauma or the personal more widely or more legibly. I have found that approach within certain writers who are using auto theory to be quite effective and quite liberating in a way. So rather than rather than talking about freedom uh, or writing about freedom, writing about how difficult it is to write about freedom somehow. 
not on a meta level, but just may, maybe a little bit more more of a distance until until it gets so close that you're already beyond somehow beyond the return of the experience itself because you've you know you've somehow accelerated beyond the moment of the pain or the trauma and so forth. So it's a little bit you know I also I'm very active. I go to psychotherapy every couple of weeks, and I'm very it's a very important part of my life, but it's also a very important part of how I try and bridge the relationship between my practice as a cultural worker and my practice as a as a human being <laughs> and maybe uh, think about sometimes how these two things are kind of very entangled for me and and, and I think I'd also you know I've been curating a lot of shows uh, over for like 30 plus years and you know, lost people during that time. And then how do you work with their legacy? How do you write their obituaries? I've wrote my first obituary this year, which was one of the most difficult texts I've ever had to write. I also have had, you know, the fortunate, I wrote a text for Marion Jaffrey's book on Independence Days, which has just been published by Koenigs and her reflection on the kind of like colonization of representational histories of the colonies was somehow a enabled a space for me to think about debt and to think about loss and think about like the impossibility of representation and the impossibility of capturing the moment of transition between like being the colonized and then the independent and you know so in a way you know trying to find spaces where which are maybe very seen like they very little to do with the personal and using them as as spaces of opening out the personal. So I don't know, I might regret all of these texts in in <laughs> in you know a few years time, but I don't think so. I think what, what has helped is is just going back, like going back to things that I wrote when I was 20 or going back to things which I wrote 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and and just disagreeing with myself or trying to imagine where I was at at that moment. And and then also not caring as much about what people think maybe about, you know, personal trauma that I may have had when I was younger or difficult moment of my life and how to maybe channel that differently. And and then sometimes when you're when you're really in this moment of mourning and grieving, it's it's just impossible to to think and to talk about and to write about anything else. Uh, and that sometimes also happens when you have this extreme like moment of pleasure, you know, where you're just like, wow, this is so overcome with joy when you listen to a piece of music or you see, I don't know, Lydia, Lydia Clark work for the first time or, you know, when you experience something for the first time, even though you may have already seen it many times before, but you feel that you're really in it. This becomes very, I can, became very heightened, I think in the absence of pleasure the last couple of years as well, the absence of dancing and, and taste became really like, you know, wanting to taste something that you knew was impossible, like, you know, flavors that, that just are, they're not up close because they're so connected with elsewhere or with the moment of the experience of them. And so I've been thinking a lot on trying to write through these experiences a little bit more openly than I perhaps would have before. So the question you've asked me is also where my reading and where a lot of my my reading and writing has been the last few months. And and then also this thing about curing and, you know, how, like, why, why did I do that in the first place? Like, you know, it, like, why do I need to do something new? 
so I, I have found it being quite rewarding to to looking looking again and again at there's a photograph of you, Jan, like where you're peeking through the the I think I might have sent it to you during the last few couple of years where you're peeking your head through the doorway of P exclamation in on Broom Street in in Ah me. You, yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. There's this image of you peeking through this. Uh, and I I I it, for some reason I remember that that moment very clearly. I don't remember very much else about the opening or I don't remember very much else about what else we did that evening, but I just very much remember you sticking your head through the entrance way. If you're one of your, one of your thresholds um, at uh, we are the epicenter exhibition. And somehow that's like just these little tiny little, little moments of joy or something seem to become maybe exaggerated uh, or maybe. Or evaluated, maybe not exaggerated. <laughs> maybe, maybe looked at differently. I was also trying to find really good documentation of that work. And for a visual essay, I, I published with PARS journal. And I think that was the only good image I could find. And I, I, I don't think I, I don't think I included it because I didn't ask for your permission. Ah. Uh. <laughs> but I might have included it. I don't know. Uh, maybe it was one of those. I don't care. I'm just going to publish it and be damned <laughs> moments. Um, but yeah, I think it's a very good question, Ulya. And what do you, what's, what's your, how do you feel about auto theory at the moment in terms of your own practice? I just recently worked on a magazine, which really exposed a lot of memories and personal experience. And in that experience, I was like really going back to how this is theorized, actually. So I was sort of like trying to take my experience and find ways to back it up because I was doing this quite intuitionally. So that's why I wanted to ask you what's like your take on this. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's interesting that auto theory is having its moment, especially given that you know it's been with us for like a hundred hundred plus years. It's very much a part of poetry. It's very much a part of prose, essayist forms of writing. It's very much part of Freudian and Lacanian psychoanalytical writing and so forth. But it's I think it's you know there's something different about this moment in relation to auto theory. I don't I don't think it's only because of Chris Krauss or Maggie Nelson or you know Semiotext and all of, or you know Mackenzie Wark and all of those people. I don't think it's because of like just queer theory becoming popular or something. I think there's something else there's something else needed within within the spaces of writing and then also how to how to how to use those uh, spaces of the of the subjective um in 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 kind of like more universal ways and i hate to say universal but more i don't know communal way or more commoning kind of way yeah but with a, at the same time a little bit of suspicion you know a little bit of suspicion of the of the kind of the same kind of like traumatizing narrative that often gets mobilized and trying to find what is the genuine, which are the genuine narratives within this can sometimes be a struggle, I think. Thank you, Ulia, for the question. And thank you, Paul, for the generous answer one more time. Do we have any other comments or questions? I mean, with this session, we can go in any direction. So feel free, Henry. Hi, everyone. So I would like uh, to ask Paul uh, a question about you know, what he was talking before 
of uh, like switching resources between like uh, bigger and smaller institutions. And I don't know, I was thinking about like it suggested me also this idea of like regulation and like in a way having rules. So what I want to ask you is, is it viable like from a state perspective to have uh, like uh, a sort of rules like fixed prices, uh, which is, you know, something that maybe now is like very needed with like the gas crisis and everything. Is it something viable in a way to have this uh, sort of regulation? Also, like the resources that you can give to institutions, because like, for example, I remember that when I moved to Milan in 2014, there were like a lot of independent spaces. Then, then they were wiped out by the expo and by gentrification because like all the prices uh, went up. Uh, there were no regulations at all. And uh, like everything basically, not they're not existing now, but they're like fewer and fewer every year. Thanks for your question, Henry. I think it's, um, it's, in, it's actually incredibly complicated question that you've asked because it's, it really is... In a way, it's it's about ideology. It's about ideology. It's about like, what do you think that at the expense of yourself, at the expense of yourself, should the world adopt certain protocols that will be better for the rest of the world? Like, can you take that position? That's what like, I suppose, radical democracy or radical regulated democracy might look like. So at the expense of myself and everyone I love, there are better decisions for the world to be made through the regulation of of capital or resources or so on. But ultimately, it might end up destroying me. It might end up destroying things which are close to me. And this is this is a very ideological question, because then it's it's a question of like, if you look at it the other way around in terms of switching it out. And you decide, I have the correct answer for the world. And the correct answer for the world is that we should regulate and that we should regulate with these certain protocols. Doesn't matter about me, but we should just regulate and and I will disappear myself during this regulation. So in a way, like the opposite, <laughs> the I don't know whether I'm said, expressing this, but in a way, the opposite is also true because it's like, who am I to decide that myself and all those that I love should be destroyed because the regulation will enable others to have a better life or something like that? You know, then we get into the question of morality and, you know, it's almost like Christianic what, I, what, what I'm proposing, you know, if I look at it the other way around, because it's like I am deciding that my regulation, you know, is the right regulation. Uh, and then at the detriment of, of others. So, but the switching out, the switching out possibility, I think, can also happen on in other more maybe subtle ways. So, what if we thought about the relationship between the dominant, like to use Raymond Williams' terms, the dominant, the emergent, and the residual? So, what if we switched out, say, emergence practices, and it was taken as the ground zero dominance to be read from? So, if we took decolonial practices, if we took like, you know, activist-based public art practices, 
that's the dominance. Forget about painting, forget about the market, forget about all the names that are in your history books. Let's wipe that clean and just start with all of these other kinds of practices. And this is, you know, this is page one of your of your history books. This switching out uh, could be an interesting default position for us to take. That's very interesting. So you are pointing to the historicization of art or the historiography of art, which has started from, I mean, there are many starting points, but the more kind of form making, painting and giving shape to materials and stuff like that to incorporate much more social bodily form giving and social practices as well. Whereas one could argue that they are completely separate threads. And maybe one could argue that painting is a craft and that's been like overvalued and it should be categorized together with other crafts. And then this kind of practice or the conceptual can be a part of another lineage. Is that what you are suggesting? Yeah, like what if the large museum collecting institutions like such as the museums, MoMA, the Van Abbey, the the Met and and so on. What what of those institutions were full of of political art, activism, social practices, work by non-binary trans artists, work that were completely and utterly um working in relation to a completely different history of modernism working in relation to a completely different history of history of art. What if that was, that was what was in all of the museums mm-hmm. and you had in small scale organizations with very little tiny resources, uh, you had like painting exhibitions, you know, just completely switch it around. And I'm talking about also the, the, the people who are, are in those positions are also switched around. So the director of MoMA is the most brilliant uh, calligrapher or the um, museum directors at, at the Met are, you know, running these small, you know, pop-up free school projects in parts of the world that are, you know, alien to most, uh, for want of a better better terminology. So what if it, these were these were completely switched out? I'm not saying that it's like it's the only way, but I'm saying it would be, you know, I think it's a proposition that people like Stephen Wright and Tanya Bergera and uh, Greg Shalette and many others are, have been trying to mobilize. So the possibility that the work that we're looking at and valuing in terms of the history of art that has enabled the construction of contemporary art as we know it, what if we started from from another perspective? What if the, the collections in museums were, were not object-based collections, but they were idea-based collections or they were political idea-based collections. They were ideological-based collections. And I'm not even, and then, but then that would then also then mobilize a different idea of what it is to collect because because the capitalization of that would have to also be different. The financialization of that would have to be different. The exchange value of, of these practices would have to be different because you they couldn't be something that could be just, you know, turned into millions of dollars for somebody else because then just become like like the paintings in the in the museums that are worth millions and trillions. So I, I don't know. It's like this is maybe what I'm talking about. This switching out. So if you switch it out, you have to you have to then start switching out the system completely. Uh, then how do you collect these practices? Because you're not if you if you're collecting these practices with 
finance or you're collecting these practices as part of a new canon, then then this new canon would immediately start to take on the properties of the market. So how do you then resist these properties of the of the market that you've initiated the alternative to? Okay, we have to kind of process this productive fiction. (laughs) (laughs) We need some time maybe we do like But I think there is something interesting in this idea of the museum becoming a more repository of Mm. experience and what form would that take? And just, I don't wish to close the loop, but then the, one of the immediate forms that comes to mind is obviously the library and the, Mm -hmm. like the collection is some form of reaching to that Mm. repository of knowing how or repository of experiences. I think it's an interesting fiction Mm -hmm. and something to dwell on. We probably did this very nice, um, what, what we think is a very nice project during the pandemic where it's still, it's still ongoing. It's called Across the Way With. And we, we connected with Shimmer Gallery in, in Rotterdam. We, we connected with different people across the world to just ask them to read aloud. And then we transcribed these, their reading, but we just just ask them to read something that was uh, about intimacy and something that they had themselves written or that they themselves were reading and to just read it aloud. And this was a simple thing. It turned into like quite a large project in the end, but in a way it became this kind of collection of voices and collection of ideas of intimacy, collections of moments of intimacy, um, you know, and it, it also was, we began it at just at a moment where it seemed that it was never going to be possible for us to be in the same room again. So, so this then created a space of enabling that we could contact people that we knew we would probably never see again in other parts of the world because geographically it's so far away or, or we together connected with people that that we really wanted to hear their voice or we connected with asked people to invite other people invite other people so in a way this this kind of collection started to it started to become an archive and a collection also a space of curatorial it became a community in a way because we knew that people were reading and then listening to other readers and so on and it's it's all it's all archived and it's all online and in a way it's like a museum to this 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 moment of listening. And in terms of the medium, is it just the sound or is it videos? It's just sound. And some people started to then play with it and maybe make small movies. They just turn on their camera a bit like this and then just read to the camera and others use just the, the blackout screen. And then we we transcribed and um, had the, the translation of their text uh, subtitled or underscored so that we could be also read as well as listen, listen to and very simple, very, very simple, but also not technically also not, not easy for everybody uh, in terms of their own technology. So some people don't have phones, some people don't have laptops and so on. And so different people, some people made films, short films, some people invited um, musicians to score them. Some people read it in one go. Some people took their time, edited it, used whatever time they had to produce it in a way with very tiny, tiny fees and tiny, tiny resources. But in a way, it felt like that's what what we wanted to make happen 
rather than producing something or, I don't know, just paying somebody to read and to listen to their voice seemed like the, it still seems like kind of radical things to do. <laughs> like podcasting, you know, let's hope this whole podcasting moment also continues in a way. And that's, you know, let's hope that the whole NTS radio movements uh, continues and in the interest in other sounds and from all parts of the world and the communities that are built around listening together and the idea of tuning in together. And it happens in lots of different ways. Uh, but, but, but in a way, this it's another way of thinking about the canon. Uh, like it's another way of thinking about rather than asking people to read, you know, other people's thoughts about intimacy from Lauren Barlan to Bjork to actually just express their own thoughts on intimacy and to share it with other people who are mm -hmm. going to listen to their voice. So it was like everybody read their own writing. Yes. Yeah. At least that was the starting point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. I think, Enrico, your question also had a layer of, let's say, kind of notions of control or support. Uh, Freudian slip. There's a thin line between support and control. <laughs> uh, support and also, uh, in a way, what the role of other institutions, such as the state or local government, to be in sustaining cultural practices and small-scale organizations. And that's more maybe... I mean, we ventured into some other direction, which was really exciting, but that's also something to, as a parenthesis, add. Yeah, because what I was thinking about, like the viability, like like that uh, regulations in a way shouldn't be like fixed numbers, but like figures that uh, like they move up and down. So, but maybe it's like very utopic and fiction, but um, I was also thinking of the viability of more like an infrastructure rather than like like something vertical and also what you were talking about before about the idea of the state uh, of like the people which you know in a way regulates itself uh, yeah when i was thinking of the viability it was uh, about the state in a way brave enough uh, to entrust the citizen with a system that they can grow on by themselves, then, you know. I mean, it's, it's, I don't have a catch-all response to that, but I know that, you know, it's 100 years since the, like, self-determining moments, the, the moment of independence for many, many nation states in the European context of, in between the wars, the world wars. Um, and, and I think it's something that's, I know uh, Annie Fletcher at the Irish Museum of Modern Art and and a number of other people in uh, the Baltic states and maybe also in Finland and India and Egypt, Turkey and so on are, are, are trying to look back at this moment of, yeah, utopia, I suppose, but also this moment of uncontaminated moment of self-determination where self-determination was was perhaps less corralled or or restricted by the influence of, of America or the so-called Western states. 
but also this moment where Leninism was maybe not so kind of was more ideological rather than you know totalitarian and Stalinist and so forth. So I think that this this in between the wars moment where in a way maybe it's many spaces of opportunity to think about how the sovereign and how they could be governed by the people uh, was was maybe being mobilized in thinking it didn't last for very long and and you know it it was perhaps the this moment of aggressive globalization kind of happened but I think a lot of people have been talking about this in, in interwar periods as as maybe a moment of productive reimagining uh, or at least even on an abstract level and the what what is the question of independence the question of sovereignty the question of self-determination how how are these ideas being thought through at the moment where where the nation state is being built or being mobilized or being emerging yeah thanks paul so i mean we've taken quite a bit of your time and you already had a full day you told us but maybe if there is like one last question or comment we can have that hi thank you very much for this really wonderful talk and the q a you mentioned some point in the q a i think about a curator being careful about who to include in an exhibition and then like how to make that decision and I myself am, am, have been thinking about that, and my answer to that is kind of very much personal, again, with that uh, sort of how the personal gets involved in the curatorial. Like, um, I usually follow my own instinct if, if the work uh, or the artist's work speak to me or, or like, you know, that, that kind of personal relation, if I have that relation with the work. Um, but then, like, I'm not quite sure if this is a good answer to that question if so like i was wondering about how do you go about making that choice um thank you uh i i suppose the the more abstract real response to that is both so do both you know to to build very proximate relationships with certain artistic practices that really you live with really that you live with but then i think it's also important to be promiscuous and to be polyphonic and to to open oneself out to other practices that might not fit so comfortably within that zone of homeliness or whatever so so i think sometimes i i think it's important to work with artists that might be in complete contradiction to yourself or might be making work that is less comfortable uh, and i don't mean i don't mean uncomfortable as in like you know politically difficult or i mean just just like it resonates differently it doesn't doesn't fit within within the way in which you see the world or it doesn't fit within the way in which you you imagine your taste or how you would decorate your home or something like that um and i think having close relationships and and like distant relationships coexisting at the same time are really important like reading reading things that you like you would never read you know like reading if you're really interested in a particular writer like read them all read every single book they've written but then also read something that's totally something else and i think this is the way i maybe reconfigure my brain sometimes and this is maybe also where where the author theory might might come in, but I find it so grating and so 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 irritating sometimes. But at the same time, 
some of the work that I've read had the opposite effect on me. It's really opened up channels of thinking and imagination and vulnerability that I didn't, didn't know were there. I'm curating a show in November, which is return to a show that I curated 20 years ago. And it, and it ended up being an artist, a show of 88 artists. But it started with a show of three artists. And I'm going back to working with those three artists 20 years later and starting again. So we're starting again on, on building, building a community around an exhibition called Coalescence. And of course, you know, 20 years later, we're all 20 years older or 20 years different and so on and so forth. But I think it's it just came from an invitation from a gallery in Barcelona. And I had curated a show in Barcelona 20 years ago. And I thought, would it be interesting to maybe look again at that show from 20 years ago and just to do it again, exactly the same? And then thought, well, you can't do anything exactly the same. It also doesn't make any sense. But in a way, it was a, it was a, a way of reconnecting with those artists. And then two of which I have worked with a number of times in the interim period and one of whom I have not worked with for 20 years on any other project. And then to then build a different kind of community around this exhibition, because obviously their networks are different, their practices are different, my practice and thinking is different. And then to try and think, well, what is it that we can carry back carry forward from 20 years ago into the into the this current moment and coalescence is you know it, it also was a kind of very open structure it, it involved like what happens when artists co-mingle together when they co-produce an entire exhibition together and then invite others and invite others and it evolves and it elaborates and it becomes this like quite large cooperative exhibition structure um, but then what happens if we do it again and we start with just the three of us four of us and if you include me and and in a way, this has got me thinking again about proximity and distance. And, you know, it would be nice to use this as a space to meet some new people and to some practices that I've that I am unfamiliar with. And then this will come through other people's familiarity with their practice. So allowing other people's familiarity with certain artists practice to become part of my own curatorial project. So it'd be a bit like saying to you, okay, maybe you bring somebody that you want to into the exhibition and then I will work with them. And then you work with somebody that I want to work with. And so, you know, then you start to think about like, okay, whose project is it anyway? And then what happens when, what happens when these, um, this, the knowledge that one has breaks down and becomes other people's knowledge um, and other people's knowledge then starts to infiltrate your own thinking about uh, your own practice. So I don't know, these are the return and the kind of like switching around or the, the going back to move forward has become, become a very productive gesture for me for me lately. And and like you said, it's like sometimes it's it's very difficult to decide who who you want to work with and how you want to work with them also. So sometimes, and then sometimes that is also re- resource oriented. At the moment, I'm working with a lot of artists publics but i'm not curating an awful lot in the traditional sense um but i'm producing a lot and curating and doing a lot of this kind of work so the the idea of doing group exhibition with three artists that might be end up being 10 artists is really exciting to me um because it's not i have no control over it in a way but i can but i'm orchestrating it at the same time This was, I think, also a good closure because it sums up many things that we touched. On the one hand, this notion of para-hosting is somehow resonates with what you are doing 
together with the artist and also this looking back to move forward one more time and just also focusing, not focusing only on kind of reinventing or proposing something anew, but also learning from one's own experience or this kind of looking back and forth kind of gesture seems to be at play, which you touched on. And I mean, as you said, years change us. For me, it's always like hard to imagine a Polonial gig without a rave, but... <laughs> I will be DJing at the party afterwards, yes. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, great to have you, Paul. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. And thanks for the wonderful questions and comments. And uh, also nice to, to see you, Chan, as well, and to spend a bit of time together and hopefully see you back in Europe soon. Same here. And thanks, everyone, for joining in with your questions or just your presence. It's much appreciated and great to have you all as part of AHALI. And see you next time. <laughs> Be well, everybody. Ciao. I must admit, the level of intimacy we have reached in this episode was beautiful. And I'd really like to take the moment to appreciate Paul's openness and thank him for that. He also reminded us all that our personas, which is somewhat another fixation of the art industry, are not independent from time. That times change, we can change, but we also have the right to look back and perhaps even redo some of our work from our own pasts. I think this is neither about growth nor about repetition and there is something else at stake here that's really worth considering. I don't know about you, but this episode gave me a lot to think on and work through. Highly Conversations are produced by Asla Altay and Sarprank Özer with Derya Yıldız as our associate producer. This episode was engineered by Arda Karaburçak with music by Group Ses. This season of Highly Conversations is supported by the Graham Foundation with additional support on this episode from Moon and Stars Project Grant. Now I know everybody's after your likes and subscribes and follows in this attention economy, but it would really help us reach more ears if you just simply let a friend know. Thank you and see you next time. <laughs>